This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Malaysian Meteorological Department, Met Malaysia, has said that Malaysia is currently facing its sixth episode of continuous heavy rains from the monsoon runoff brought about by the northeast monsoon. And as we know, with heavy continuous rains, there also comes floods. We've seen evacuations, even the loss of life uh, happening in states like Johor, Pahang and Sabah. Over in Sarawak, flood hit areas like Kuching, Bao and Siburan districts last week due to the continuous rains for two days days. Now, Sahabat Alam Malaysia, the NGO which fights for causes related to the Malaysian environment, do have an office over in Marudi in Sarawak and they have expressed their continued concern on how the occurrences of floods in Sarawak, including in Baram, have become more frequent and intense in recent years. According to them, prior to the large-scale conversion of forests for the purpose of monoculture plantations, such floods were rather uncommon in the upstream areas of interior Sarawak. So in all likelihood, they might be part of the adverse environmental consequences of deforestation. So today on the show, I'm going to discuss this with Shamila Arifin. She is a senior research and media officer with Sahabat Alam Malaysia. We're going to talk about the situation over in Sarawak in particular, but also, you know, how that affects the larger part of Malaysia as well. Welcome, Shamila. How are you today? Thank you. Hi. I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Shamila. And lovely to uh, to have you on the show. Um, so maybe we can just start off very quickly by discussing the work that Sahabat Alam carries out over in Sarawak through your office base in Marudi. I mean, uh, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, where is Marudi? Uh, yeah, talk to me about the co- communities you collaborate with and the work that you guys do. Well, Sabah Alam Malaysia's office in Marudi was um, established, I believe, somewhere in the early 1980s. It's located in Marudi, which is about, I think, about 70 kilometers or slightly more than Miri. And uh, takes about, I think, right now, depending on the condition of the roads, they change from time to time, you see. Mm-hmm. So right now it's about one hour, uh, one to two hours um, from Miri. Um, there's also a short flight, 20 minutes on a twin otter from Miri too. Uh, Marudi is um, located by the river Baram which I believe is the second longest river in the country. <laughs> and uh, the communities we, collab- we collaborate with are um, the indigenous peoples of Sarawak um, and around Marudi, Baram, um, Iban communities, um, Kayan, Kenyah, and also Penan. We fundamentally deal with issues that are related to the indigenous customary land rights. Mm-hmm. Um, or better, in legally known in Sarawak as native customary rights. So tied to the protection of these rights comes the protection, um, you know, naturally um, on forests. So um, the issues we work with, with our community partners, would be logging, uh, encroachments of their territories caused by logging uh, monoculture plantations. Um, also, historically, we used to work on the Bakun Dam too. We provide legal services, um, legal advice. Um, sometimes when uh, we need, also um, we help to represent affected communities. Um, we also have a, an interesting component of agroecology and uh, community forest management. Um, that is uh, sort of you know building an alternative system to what the world has unfortunately built now, which is, you know, expansion and destruction. So at the heart of our work is always um, the communities come first. Okay, all right. So uh, 
yeah, pretty much, you know, what uh, Sahabat Alam Malaysia has, you know, always stood for um, and Friends of the Earth, you know, international as well. Um, and just still focusing on, on you know, Marudi and also the changing landscape of Sarawak. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? You know, because I was going through some uh, Global Forest Watch data and uh, it said that in Sarawak, uh, six regions were responsible for 55% of all tree cover loss between 2001 and 2021. Uh, they mentioned Balaga had the most tree cover loss uh, comp- uh, and Marudi was second, actually, with a loss of 376,000 uh, hectares. Can, can you talk to me about how, you know, I mean, you you do a lot of work there. Can you talk to me about how you've sort of experienced or you've witnessed the landscape there changing? Well, Balaga is the location of the Bakuna Bakun Hydroelectric mm-hmm. Dam. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. And um, the Marudi um, is where our office is at. And yes, there is visibly less forest. Um, if you go through by road or you fly through the air, you can see a lot of um palm oil plantation um, in Marudi. So in areas, I believe, like around Bintulu, there's oil palm and also pulp and paper. Um, so basically, um, it's unavoidable. You you cannot argue there is no deforestation in in Sarawak. It's, it's, you cannot argue against it because it's visible. You yeah. can see it. Yeah. And if you've been there before, uh, let's let, like you give gave a date 2001 or so prior to that and you can really see a difference so it's undeniable that there is forest conversion um to turn a forested areas forest ecosystems into a, a monoculture plantation it's okay, and and that of course you know has uh, implications on the uh, the communities living there. You know, it changes the way I guess j- just the way things are, isn't it? In general, I mean, the way people live, the way uh, yeah, people uh, look for their sustenance. You know, if they are dependent on forests and things like that, everything pretty much changes. Correct. Um, and uh, before, it, prior to this, let's say we used to deal with um, encroachments or violations of native customary rights of indigenous territories yeah mm-hmm. so a lot of work um or was and is still focused on that but right now let's say in the last seven eight years apart from the violations themselves we have been receiving complaints now about the impacts of these violations these are interrelated the way separate things that we have to deal with right now mm-hmm. one is the defense of indigenous ancestral territories. Mm-hmm. Then second, having to deal the aftermath of the um, violations and encroachments. Because um, when the forest is cut, and, and mind you, it's not just forest, um, it's also sometimes farms, cultivated areas, or land left in fallow. It may not necessarily be just um, forest ecosystems. It's a productive and indigenous territory. is 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 also productive, um, you know. Uh, it's also cultivated. Um, so then now we have to deal with impacts apart from a violations of land rights. So you can see right now, after having their land been taken away and and converted, then the impacts of it are unfairly burdened onto affected communities. Okay. And 
I was reading an article uh, by uh, Sam Sarawak coordinator uh, Jok Jao Ivong. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this was actually from last May, right? And uh, this is something that he wrote, and I'm quoting here. He said that from the 1990s onwards, uh, timber production in Sarawak began to decrease gradually as a result of unsustainable logging, which began to intensify two decades earlier. And following the depletion in its natural timber resources, permits began to be issued for monoculture plantations, chiefly for the cultivation of pulp and paper trees and also oil palm. Uh, can you sort of elaborate more on, on what that uh, on that for us, please? Um, what that means is that simply the development of monoculture plantations in Sarawak is a post-logging development. Right. It must be seen from the same spectrum mm. of, uh, you know, um, violation of indigenous customary land rights and deforestation and from the same economic model. Only the commodity changes from, from natural timber mm. then to um, oil palm or pulp and paper. So, yes, there is a lot of, you know, criticism against development of monoculture plantations and whatnot, but really we should also question why why there is need for that in the first place if it has always been argued that we have a sustainable uh, forest management system, sustainable timber production system, then why is it that these formerly uh, logged over areas are being turned into monoculture plantations? Mm. Where is the sustainability in that? If you obviously... you finish off the forest. I mean, don't get me wrong, logging is also horrible on the ecosystem and affected communities, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, but if you say you are claiming that you're doing sustainable logging, why the need to convert them after 1990s? What, what was the reason for this? Yeah, because it doesn't sound like it's sustainable, right? <laughs> At all. It doesn't look, it doesn't sound... <laughs> Okay. And, yeah. you know, for, for anyone who might not be familiar, I mean, maybe you can help explain also the problem with clear cutting of forests. You know, can you explain how, I mean, you know, what happens to the landscape, you know, and how it affects the vegetation and the topsoil and things like that? Well, obviously, logging is bad, but forest conversion is infinitely worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, because... Um, logging you you go into the forest and you take you know particular trees in the manner the method of how you extract your harvest of course it matters a lot and and the intensity of of how much you take also matters a lot it contributes towards whether or not uh, forest recovery or ecosystem recovery is possible mm -hmm. but um when you clear cut the forest everything's gone yeah. it's not just topsoil it's, it's you know the wildlife that is there um, and then after the impacts would be, you know, floods that would come would be worse. Um, river ecosystem can be badly um, damaged. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you may have, for example, fishery fishery resources may decline sharply. Yeah. And then um, depending really on the ecosystem, on, on the rivers and, you know, the local ecosystem, predators may increase uh, we've got complaints also from communities that um they they according to them um sightings of crocodiles for example i see um is more frequent and then who will be impacted worse by you know such a thing for example maybe women 
many people do not think in terms of um you know gender inequities in when 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 this sort of development destructive development comes yeah, yeah. in the past for example um women in the villages if you, even if you remember they were relatively free mm. they could you mm. know take a boat and have a group of you know girlfriends <laughs> and go off they don't have to wait for their husbands they do but you know people are free to arrange their own um livelihoods how they're going to do that right now when if you were to go alone or with just two friends and you see a crocodile i don't think you would want to <laughs> go that often and you know so then what happens to your to your ability to bring food home to bring income home so the impacts of this one simple action which is clear cutting forest it it has like a domino effect you know mm-hmm. of of things that maybe if you live in the city you might not be familiar with it yeah yeah and and then after the clear cutting if you develop um let's say for example uh, if you know all palm plantation and then there is use of the use of a, a pesticides or fertilizer what could happen to the river can you know you, you may not be able to drink the water or you could have for example maybe pro- proliferation of aquatic weeds i don't know because the system is is disturbed um then anything could happen depending on the local um, ecosystem but basically yes communities would end up seeing a loss of income uh, a loss of uh, freedom of movement uh, women also sometimes report they're not very comfortable uh, going around their territories because there would be men outsiders from the plantation companies. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, they, you know, they're not comfortable. Before they may feel free to go, you know, um, alone somewhere or maybe with two, three friends. And now sometimes it could, in certain situation, make people really uncomfortable. It's like having a stranger in your house. Yeah. I mean, that's what a territory is is your is your land i mean you should be able to go anywhere you want comfortably mm-hmm. and strangers should not be allowed without permission yeah so it's not just an environment it's not just environmental impacts of course it's social impacts it impacts their livelihoods and even just their way of life pretty much isn't it correct Okay, all right. Let's just go for a quick break, Shamila. When we come back, uh, let's uh, let's continue that discussion about you know how the communities are experiencing increased flooding, or they're saying that you know the floods have worsened. I'm speaking today to Shamila Arifin. She's a senior research and media officer with Zahabat Alam Malaysia. We're talking about the work uh, that Zahabat Alam does over in their office in Marudi. We're talking about how the cha- changing landscape there has come to affect uh, the communities who live there, and also of course the environment there. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right. Right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today is Shamila Arifin. She's the Senior Research and Media Officer from Sahabat Alam Malaysia. Uh, she does a lot of work uh, b- both here in Peninsula Malaysia, but also in the Sahabat Alam Malaysia's office in Marudi, Sarawak. Uh, and we were talking about sort of the issues that uh, the folks over in the, the, the communities in Sarawak are facing. Uh, a lot of it has to do, of course, with the conversion of forests uh, for the purpose of monoculture plantations, you know, clear felling of forests. How, uh, and before the break, Shamila, 
Camilla was explaining how all of that comes to impact the communities who live there. You know, it, it not just affects their their safety, their livelihoods, but uh, you know, just their basic way of life, pretty much. Um, and you know, before the break, Shamila uh, was mentioning the article by Jok Jao Ivong, right? You know, where he spoke mm-hmm. about how you know all this unsustainable logging. Um, they've begun to see that uh, it's it's really come to impact the landscape there. And he wrote that it's not surprising uh, that beginning from the uh, early 2010s, like that flooding incidences have become more constant and intense in many areas of Sarawak. Um, And this is, of course, is backed up by uh, data reported and published by Sarawak's Department of Irrigation and Drainage. Are there any stats that you can share with us? Um, Well, for a complete stat, Mm -hmm. um, you should go to the website of JPS, um, which can, you know, we are not saying this, yeah. Mm. The, the the statistics saying this, so you can see how the increase in number of flooding incidents, and it's frightening, uh, in my opinion. If you were to see the stats, let's say from the nineteen, it I think it begins somewhere in the nineteen forties or fifties, and then how the list <laughs> becomes longer and longer and longer. So, for example, uh, maybe like like Marudi itself, yeah, mm-hmm. um, Marudi, which is in Baram, uh, between let's say if you were to look at the stats from two thousand one to twenty ten, a decade, the DID data shows that the uh, interior uh, Marudi Marudi area and the villages surrounding it, um, they uh, flooding incidents. Uh, there were three times reported um, November 2007, October 2008, November 2010. This is uh, the first decade, 2001 to 2010. Mm -hmm. But from 2011 to 2020, um, the Marudi and the surrounding areas uh, were flooded in January 2011, November 2012 end of December 2013 up until January 2014, January and November 2015, January 2017, February and April 2018, <laughs> and in December 2019 too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then also earlier uh, January 2020. Now, this is just, you know, a verbal description of it, but if you were to go to the website, then you can see that um uh, and it's not just Marudi, it's yeah. also in other areas of Sarawak. Um, and then, and there are particular vulnerable, extremely vulnerable areas in Baram, like uh, of uh, the, the most well-known one is, of course, Long Bamang and the surrounding areas. Yeah. Okay. In uh, Now, for example, uh, in Long Bamang, in Tinjar, in, in Baram, um, the, the frequency, there are just too many times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2017, Long Bamang and the surrounding areas, um, the JPS, the DID data showed like three times in 2017. Who can live with that? Yeah. Three times of flooding incidents in one year. But this is only 2017. Um, from the uh, DID data, the fire department of Marudi, however, reported seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, this is three years after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Long Bamang uh, and the areas. This is only one year. Uh, there's March, April, and May. Um, and then in 2021, it was repeatedly like we 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 uh, we found media reports of the flooding incidents in Long Bamang uh, in May, 
July, August, and September. Gosh. And la last last year, January to June 2022, uh, six times. That is an average of one month, one incident per month. That's crazy. And I'm just going back for three years, three, I mean, three, four years, 2017 to 2022. Who can live with this sort of, it's, it's like a monthly disaster incident. You're just waiting for it to happen. It's, it's, not, um, it's not a question of whether it will happen. It seems like, I don't know if, you know, and we, we cannot imagine how the affected communities have to cope. And and it has been. I mean, we've they've seen. I mean, clearly they've incurred loss and damages uh, personally. Um, you know, it's affected things like schools and things like that. Right? I mean, can you sort of describe how? Yeah, the the, the actual impacts on the local communities there. Oh, it's um, unbelievable. The damages. I mean, I do not know if there there is an agency, um, government agencies that has quantified properly. But if you talk to the people, and we're not just talking about furniture, we're talking about electrical um, um, equipment, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And the schools, yes. And do not forget the elderly and the ill. Uh, yep. And mm -hmm. in, in the village, for example. And there is also, a, you know, rural urban migration. Uh, for so uh, you know this happens of course too in Sarawak. So sometimes in villages such as Long Bamang, there is a larger population of the elderly, the younger in the cities or in the urban areas. Mm. Now, can you imagine like, each time if there is a, um, a, a a a flooding incident, how will the elderly people cope? Um, and what if they are people who are bedridden and they are and and my my colleagues they they have met they have interviewed and the people they have described the difficulty of ensuring the safety of those who are not um who, who are who are bedridden or, or not as strong anymore um they would they, they they of course they adapt they you know things are put at higher levels but um it's not a solution that is just an adaptation to a very difficult situation yeah, I can't. Yeah, clearly, I, I can't even begin to imagine it, right? And I mean, the the losses, the con the the repeated losses, right? I mean, how do you even begin to to you know fathom that? And um, how do you even begin to sort of? I I, must, I assume they are told like, okay, maybe you need to move and things like that, right? There's no sort of proper plan to to help these communities. Well, well, how they well, what I'd like to also state here is when we say how difficult it is, we must also understand the mental um, toll it takes yeah. on the communities. Yes, of yeah? course. Like yes. how can you be properly happy if this is uh, the life that you have to contend with? So apart from just, you know, damages, uh, real damage, should also wonder how the communities are doing psychologically how nervous they get or, or you know the anxiety of every time it rains if you remember even in peninsula after the yes. 2014 uh, or recently in Shah Alam, right yes. after months after that you can see a lot of people around us each time it rains they get yes. nervous right yes yes definitely. and you imagine having to face this once every month and bear in mind that sometimes the rain does not have does not have to happen in your village it could happen upstream 
and then the reverse starts to come. I mean, you know, so um, psychologically, mentally, we should also question like how the communities are doing, how 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 they feel stressed out by this. So um, yes, they yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, and these are not things that will make the headlines, isn't it? You'll just hear things like, okay, this amount of people evacuated to this relief centre, etc. But we don't know, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, what they're going through, uh, how they're feeling. Uh, the, you know, seniors, you know, um, I can't imagine, you know, having, if you're bedridden, if you're ill, your children aren't around, you know, I mean, that kind of toll that it takes on you, both physically and mentally, as you said. Correct, correct. And also, here's the thing. If you look at it, like no community would ever locate their village, their territory, if the place is frequently flooded yeah. as frequently as it does now. Mm-hmm. So um, now we should really question, like, why is it, uh, you know, that, that of course, the, the, there is uh comments so that you would see people say because Long Bamang is in a lower area. Uh, but why would a community in uh, build or or Saitya village their territory at such an area? So obviously before this was not the case. I mean there would be flooding but not like this. Um, and so why the news do not get out is because of location. Um, you know, the media is very much um, centric, you know, Peninsula, Kuala Lumpur, even in Peninsula, it's always the Klang Valley stories that get out, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, if, yeah. if anything happens, any anything at all, uh, that's where the focus will be there. Uh, but this is not the case in rural Sarawak. Um, how even for, for rescue um, or, or, or even volunteers, like if you see in Peninsula when, uh, you know, there would be people coming from West Coast to assist people in the East Coast, that sort of thing, community volunteerism. It's not very easy to do that in rural Sarawak yeah. um, for, because of the, you know, uh, the transportation system and um, and uh, logistics, basically. Yeah, I mean, just how so, r- rural it is, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So this is also um, part of the... It, it just doesn't make headlines, and people do not know. I mean, can you imagine if uh, Shah Alam <laughs> of Utaling <laughs> Jaya, yeah. or this sort of thing happens, and it would have uh, gone somewhere. And also, apart from rescue, whether from officials or from, you know, other concerned citizens and also the fact that news cannot get out, you would also imagine that for communities in the rural areas to actually bring their problems to to the authorities, it may not be that easy because, you know, they, they would have, you know, Marudi would be the nearest town, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they want to see the top senior official of the state, they would be in Kuching. And also, even for us, sometimes organizing uh, meetings with them is not easy. I mean, we 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 had like what you know, I think one or two times we've organized like okay, we we will have a meeting, and then guess what? They were flooded, so oh they couldn't gosh. come. Oh yes, my yeah, like like the very fact that we were trying to arrange for them to meet the authorities in Kuching, and they couldn't. Not just not just now, not just because of the floods, but because. They sometimes when, again, 
it might be, you know, a, a rainy season, they might be, so they can't leave. So we have to stay put in the village just in case. So can you imagine that when you have this kind of disaster, this frequently, it's not only when the disaster happens, it's when in case it happens because it has become a fact of life. So then you want to go here, you want to, you know, meet authorities and, and just doing normal daily things, you might be impeded because you might think like, I can't leave home for that long because what if it floods? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not a straightforward, you know, like you and me living in Klang Valley. It's not, I mean, I mean, sorry, for people like me living in Klang Valley, you know, it's just a drive home, right? No, this is a very, very different journey to get back home. Uh, yeah. And if you've got a complaint, it's just a tweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always, like somebody's a friend of a friend and you complain yeah. and then, yeah, but, but, but sometimes in the rural areas, you may not even have signals. Mm. Um, so, yes, so this, this is the reality that I think the authorities, federal and state, must look into this uh, much more seriously. You can't have this situation where where a number of villages are facing uh, a, a disaster. I refuse to call it a natural disaster. It's just a disaster again and again, almost every month or many times in uh, a year. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's ridiculous, right? You can't you can't expect expect people to just withstand these sort of you know repeated events right every Correct. yeah every other month or month as it is happening now um as far as you know is the Sarawak state government at the very least right are they studying the cause of the floods you know especially in areas like Baram are they are there any plans to sort of revol- uh, resolve or mitigate anything at all um i do not know but i sure hope they do okay yeah mm-hmm. all right and I guess you know the larger picture of things, right? Would you would you be able to also share why it's really imperative for uh, Sarawak, you know, to preserve the remaining forest that it still has and and rehabilitate those that have been degraded by logging, uh, you know, the monocultures and all these other human activities. Well, there's climate change for one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah there's, yep. there's, there's there's climate change, and um, um, like I said. Um, Flooding is only one problem. Mm-hmm. When the ecosystem is disturbed, um, that's, you know, anything can happen like you may not know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the balance between predate, you know, predators and uh, just the population of wildlife and can be disturbed in ways that we may not yet understand. And I do think uh, that the tropical rainforest actually is is not yet exactly well understood. If you were to look at literature in forestry science, for example, and the wonderful work that's been done by Frim, and uh, you you can see that you know a lot of studies are still are still being done <laughs> mm. uh, to really understand you know the the tropical rainforest ecosystem. Now, when it's gone. There is no more study, and I, I I've also read you know articles by foresters, um, not from Malaysia, for example, saying that like when you lose an ecosystem, you lose what's in there, but you also lose the opportunity to study it and to learn and you know what they've been doing for us, um, to maintain life on Earth. So it's like really you're losing a school, you're losing a library. Like, like when we say, you know, the book burners of the past, I mean, we 
we have you know particular stereotype images about that but when you destroy a forest that's what you're doing you're destroying a library of knowledge you're destroying books so you know it's time for us as, as a civilization to, to stop doing that and realize that in a natural ecosystem forested or however they are mm -hmm. it's a treasure trove of of knowledge and data and information and so much more and we should stop destroying them because then we wouldn't know what they really possess what they've been giving to the world to us yeah we, we don't even know what's in there right because we're so busy destroying it before we're discovering what's Correct. in it yeah yeah, yeah. and but for the communities there, is there anything that, uh, you know, any assistance that they need? Because, you know, these repeated sort of disasters that they are facing um, must have come to impact their livelihoods and their, you know, their belongings and things like that. Is there any way that, um, or is there any uh, assistance that would be helpful for them? I think the state authorities must have a proper plan okay. um, on how, what is the plan really? Not just because of the impacts of monoculture plantations, but also because of um, the climate change. We really do not know what is going to happen 20, 10 years from now, right? Yeah. So um, there must be a proper plan in place on, on what can be done um, to protect whatever forest that is still there um, and how to assist the communities to adapt um before it's too late uh you have to start planning now and this plan must be discussed publicly uh, and and must be communicated mm -hmm. so that so that um you know it, it becomes a new way of life a new normal whether we like it or not so a proper plan must be in place and and the public uh must know what the plan is because you can have a plan if you don't know about it then you know it's it's not Pointless. good enough yeah okay mm -hmm. all right well thank you so much Amila for joining me today uh any any other last message that you'd like to leave us with any uh, any closing thoughts um i think uh for the indigenous communities um we should also have a policies and laws should be reviewed and reformed so that there is respect to the indigenous customary land rights, not just as a right to property, which is accepted by the Malaysian judiciary, but also the right to life. Yeah. Uh, people don't think about it, but the forest is alive. The forest gives life and the forest protects us so that we could have a safe and fruitful life. Um, and as long as this respect uh, for what that has been given to us is not there, I don't know how we, not just we, but humanity in general can survive climate change. The approach and the way we look at things, at, at nature, at, at ecosystem must change, the values must change, because if you continue to see them merely as commodities mm -hmm. as as you know resources of where money can be made of then communities uh, the rights of communities will not be respected and that will be at um our own peril i'm afraid maybe not us but our children and that is the saddest part yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we who are alive maybe you know we can have a little bit more of what we're having now but 50 years down the line 
what's going to happen? Yeah. What if we left our children with, right? Yes, correct. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Shamila, for joining me today. I've been speaking... Welcome. I've been speaking to Shamila Arifin, Senior Research and Media Officer with Sahabat Alam Malaysia. If you'd like to find out about the good work that Sahabat Alam does, just head to their website. That's foe-malaysia.org. You can follow them on social media as well. And if you miss any part of our uh, conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.